friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I thank you for joining us this week for Conversations with Consequences. I hope that our conversations have wonderful consequences for you, that they inform and enlighten and ennoble and fill your your day with light. That's what we're here for. At least that's what we're trying to do here. This week, we have hopefully a very good show for you that you will enjoy we will be talking about the Federal Drug Administration's newly relaxed rules on chemical abortion, which is now in full effect with pharmacies signing up to carry the dangerous drug. Your local CVS and Walgreens now has full authority from the FDA to dispense uh, chemical abortion pills to girls and women. We're going to talk to Charlotte Lozier's Dr. Ingrid Scope, a practicing OBGYN, who is also the Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs, Affairs at Charlotte Lozier, about these drugs. But first, as we are quickly approaching the, ta- the March for Life in D.C., always a great annual event, we check in with the Sisters of Life, who are organizing a morning event uh, on the day of the march um, called Life Fest. Uh, Sister Marie Veritas is joining us to tell us all about this uh, wonderful opportunity for all of those who are local in D.C. and the many thousands who travel from across the United States. Welcome to the show, Sister Veritas. Oh, thank you so much, Gracie. Gift to be with you. Well, coming up uh, very, very soon is the Great March for Life in D.C. that has been held every year for decades now. This is a, a brand new kind of March for Life because since the last time, since last January of 2022, the terrible regime of Roe v. Wade that was established in 1973 has fallen thanks to the Supreme Court and all the good justices on the court that saw the injustice of Roe v. Wade and the way it left all of the nation's unborn children at the mercy of, of any kind of rejection uh, that society could invent for them. Um, so the March for Life is it will be different, I think, in some ways. I'm, I'll be there, of course, and I'll be looking out uh, for all the differences. And I'm sure there'll be a different energy and maybe different a different focus, since what we're doing now is, is is still standing up for life, but we're doing it in a different way because it's not just a federal a federal movement to to get rid of that terrible Roe v. Wade, but it's now something we need to take back to all our state capitals and all our municipalities and our cities and towns. So um, to that, sister, we wanted to have you on so you could tell us about Life Fest, which is replacing something that has traditionally been part of the March for Life. But why don't you tell our listeners what it's replacing, why that's gone, and what Life Fest will be? Sure. So yeah, I mean, as you're saying, it's right now, it's just such a pivotal moment in history, you know, and, and marching for the cause of human life and celebrating the end of Roe versus Wade and really stepping forward into a new beginning of the protection of human life in this country, but also stepping into kind of a new time of healing, because uh, our country really needs healing, you know, and, and as you're saying, over these 50 years, we've, we've come together, strengthened each other, marched, because we know every life is sacred, every life is good, every life has value. And we really have, you know, in our prayer and our discussion with each other, we really know that, that love is the only answer, mm-hmm. right, to the culture of death and to the cause of life. 
and that that love is kind of the answer and what our hearts need uh, to heal as a nation. And so we've—I don't even know if I would necessarily say life best is replacing anything. It's kind of a totally new initiative. Oh, good. Um, kind of in. Re- in response to this, so Life Fest, the Sisters of Life, in partnership with the Knights of Columbus, basically uh, hosting a, a kind of a morning rally on the morning of the march, January 20th. The actual event slot is 7.30 to 10.30. And it's basically uh, a time of uh, praying together, um, really dynamic speakers, dynamic music, and really um, kind of inspiring and hopefully um, causing people to rise up uh, uh, in desire to to really um, protect the gift of life, the sacred gift of each and every person, uh, but also to be agents of love and healing in our nation. Uh, so we really, it's in a way, it's like a uh, a new movement in the sense of, as, as you're saying, there's a new cultural landscape, and it's kind of a response to that. That this is not as much about uh, laws anymore. You know, as Roe fell, obviously there's still states that we need to pray <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. deeply that they change their laws. But it's really we really want to help create and foster and encourage. Uh, a new culture of life, you know, one heart at a time. Uh, because while the law is a great teacher and laws can really have a huge impact, hearts need to also change. So that's kind of the hope of life. You get to a very important point there that for so long we were we were focused very strongly on law, right? Because we were we were bound up in this law that was so unjust, and it was and it was a kind of blanket law all across the country, and it didn't allow for any deviation. And obviously, it had to fall. It had to fall. <laughs> And and thank God that and thank you God that that you that you put all the pieces there together for us and and gave us the grace so that we can make it happen. But um, so that's now though, as you say, we are looking at a different battle, a battle for hearts, because there's there have been generations that have been born and grown up under Roe v. Wade, whose minds and hearts are completely twisted into this um, sort of default erroneous position that there are lives that can be discarded, lives that don't matter. Do you so Life yeah. Fest, I'm I'm hearing Life Fest is 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 going directly to that spot, to to the changing of the hearts, to the straightening out of those knots. Definitely, definitely. And giving uh, hopefully hopefully giving people a new language uh, with which to engage the discussion about life, you know, because we know too, you know, in 50 years of uh, legalized abortion, right? So many men and women have um, deeply suffered from the experience of abortion. There's a lot of, of healing needed, a lot of broken hearts. And as Sisters of Life, one of our missions is uh, a mission of hope and healing after abortion, walking with women who have suffered after abortion, um, and just. Um, yeah, helping helping every person to know that there's no sin or darkness bigger than the mercy of Jesus Christ, and that He can make all things new. And, and so I think a large part of of that is learning how to um, how to speak about all, you know all the life issues in a way that is going to be uh, receivable and deeply true and healing, um, and helping uh, helping people know how to actually engage in conversation with others. And and again, as I said earlier, just to be really agents of, of healing and life uh, in our world. And so again, our, yeah, as, as we mentioned, our hope is that Life Fest can kind of be a catalyst uh, for that. Well, explain to us, sister, what are the changes in language that you think need to need to happen going forward? How can how can we how can we speak that 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 voice of healing and and those phrases of healing better? Mm-hmm. And again, I think. I think many people are already doing this, so it's not just yes, <laughs> of right. course. It's already it's already happening. Um, but I think first, it's always whenever we talk about abortion, whether that's in conversation or um, a talk or a homily or things like that, it's very helpful to always speak about it through a lens of mercy, 
right? We're not, we're not pretending it's not a sin. We're not saying it's, it's okay, but always to, to frame it in the lens of mercy that, you know, while this is, um, you know, a deep wrong and it deeply wounds, and not only the child, of course, but the woman and those involved, um, but uh, to always hold out that there's nothing beyond Jesus' love and mercy. And that's, I think that's very important because I think sometimes uh, there, there has been, there have been situations, right, where, where mercy hasn't been held out, and um, and that can be very hard for a woman who desires mercy, desires to be healed from her experience of abortion, but but hasn't encountered that language or someone speaking like that, you know, that that's possible. So I think first, that's very important, is um, paying attention to how we speak about it, uh, always in truth and in love and in mercy. Um, I think also too, really, uh, I think this is a new opportunity in our our time to really delve deeper into understanding the heart of a pregnant woman in crisis, what she's going through, her fears, her desires, her dreams, uh, the pressures she's experiencing. You know, some, often she's being coerced by people in her life. And to, I think the more deeply we can understand her heart and, and her experiences, the more deeply we're going to be able to, to walk with her, listen to her, and, and ultimately um, be, accompany her into life. You know, so I think those are two kind of... Um, ways of, of kind of starting to frame our language um, that can really help, help, help people, because I think often a uh, woman needs to know that she's seen and heard. She needs to experience her life as gift before she can experience her child as gift. So I think, yeah, just yeah, new frontiers in that language, which, again, people have been using for, <laughs> for years, too, so it's not like it's totally new, but I think it can, it's a beautiful invitation in this moment. Yeah, it's not new, but it's certainly something we can perfect, right? Like, we can, we can really focus on that and perfect that, because, as you say, if you're looking out at, at a, 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 a group of people, even a congregation at church, it would probably be hard to throw a stone and not hit somebody that hasn't been hurt by abortion from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the perspective of a, the father of a child, the grandparent of a child, a, a friend who helped another friend and now is horrified. Yeah. I have, yeah. I've, told, I've told this story on the air before. My sister, when she was in college many years ago, she, when she first got to college, she had a roommate, and that roommate had two abortions during the first semester of college. My sister, like me, <laughs> when she went to college, she was a very sheltered Catholic school, Hispanic girl, and she didn't really know how to respond to that, and she ended up driving her roommate to the, the abortions twice. My sister, my sister's 54. My sister suffers about that to this day because um, she feels complicit, and it's a complicity that she hasn't been able to somehow work out. For, for She hasn't been able, of course, she has spoken about it and confessed it and uh, to the priest and, and, and prayed for mercy and all that, but it still rankles and it still hurts. Um, so it always, that, you know, knowing that about my sister helps me to know that the, our, our country's full of people like my sister that would never have an abortion, but are feeling complicit in someone else's abortion or felt pressured into participating. And that's mm-hmm. so tragic. It's so tragic, the, the amount of hurt that's out there. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I, and I just want to say, like, I really, I think you're right. There's so many hearts that have been wounded more than we know, you know. And I, I just want to, want to reiterate again, like, Jesus loves you. He's never stopped loving you. He sees mm-hmm. you. He knows you. And just to tell everyone who's listening, like, um, he wants to heal you. Nothing's beyond his mercy. Come back to him, you know? And, and truly, like he, as he says, he makes all things new. And so I think part of it is just speaking about that. You know, the more we can talk about, <laughs> about that, and the more it gives people permission to actually engage their own healing, you know, in so many ways. So amen. I think that's so important. 
Part of the Life Fest celebration will be a mass um, celebrated by Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore. What are you expecting from, from the Archbishop? He's wonderful. No, he's we, we absolutely love Archbishop Laurie. He's been a, a great uh, spiritual father and friend to us over many, many years. We're just so thrilled uh, that he's that he's uh, coming and will really, yeah, yeah, be a father, I think, to, to all present, which is wonderful. And are you expecting um, many young people? How is that? I'll, and I'll tell you my on my side, I'm, I'll be going to the to the march, basically to work. <laughs> and, and oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll be working at the at the march from the media tent, I suppose. And I do I go every year, and I absolutely adore the March for Life. It makes me feel like there's so much beauty and hope and wonder in this world, and especially in our young people. But my daughter is going. This my youngest daughter, who's 15, is going with her school uh, with the Archdiocese of Miami. So yesterday, I I emailed the teacher that's accompanying them, and I said, "Are you going to the Life Fest?" And she didn't know anything about it. She said, "I don't know because the Archdiocese is the one that makes our schedule." So do you expect the Archdiocese, uh, like like the one of Miami, to to make arrangements to attend the Life Fest? I think uh, we've had already a lot of our archdiocese um, reached out and, and they've um, registered, so with kind of large groups of, of young people from different dioceses. So I do think there's going to be a lot of young people there. I think also, I mean, everyone is welcome, so it doesn't, it's not, mm-hmm, you know, of course. not strictly a youth event, but I do think a lot of dioceses have already registered um, their youth. And, and again, it's not, again, there's... Um, a limited capacity, so, you know, uh, hopefully, and I don't know if we're going to do it next year, but if we do, hopefully bigger, who knows, but um, but definitely, yeah, a lot of youth are coming, which is which is wonderful, which is very beautiful. So, and the other thing, too, is, you know, if, um, if people aren't able to come in person, uh, we are going to be live streaming it, so that can also be uh, available via live stream uh, on our, our website, lifefest2023.com. Now, it's it's a beautiful thing to do it just before the march. I mean, people, when when the young people and the older people leave Life mm-hmm. Fest to go to the march, they will their hearts will be opened and, and their spirits will be high and they'll be filled with grace from, from having been at Life Fest. And, and, mm-hmm. and the march will be that much more meaningful for them. Yeah, I think, I hope so. That's what we're hoping, you know, that it really lights a fire, a uh, fire of love and uh, truth and just zeal for, for the beauty of the human person. So, we're hope, hopeful. <laughs> I've read some, uh, some about the lineup of speakers, only a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I read that there will be a sister of life sharing the stage with her twin sister who has Down syndrome. Can you tell us yeah. a little more about this, this remarkable story? Yeah, no, it's so beautiful. We're so excited. <laughs> Um, so Sister Mary Casey and her twin sister Casey um, will be will be sharing a little of their testimony and just their uh, yeah their experience of growing up and and uh, their their love for each other. So we're really excited about it. Casey is so wonderful. We just love her to bits, and Sister Mary Casey is just so wonderful. And we love her to bits, and so it's really uh, really a gift for them to be able to share that, and especially in in this culture right where where um, those with Down syndrome so often aren't valued, you know, in many, many areas of our culture. So just a beautiful witness of the sacredness of every human life um, in every way. So we're, we're very excited that it's, uh, it's going to be possible. And I, I'm, I'm anticipating I'll probably cry or something. <laughs> you know, children, children and adults with Down syndrome, I, I feel that they are one of the most wonderful beacons of, of pro-life fervor that mm-hmm. we could ever light, right? When you see those beautiful faces, always so full of love and cheerfulness, and you can see Christ in their faces, in the faces of those with Down syndrome. And mm-hmm. and to think that, that as a society, we reject them so savagely. 
Uh, I think even the most cold-hearted, you know, population control experts <laughs> or, or ethicists, so-called ethicists, it must quell their hearts, no, when they see the, the beauty in the face of a person with Down syndrome. It's so true. It's so, so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're we're very excited about about uh, Casey and Sister Mary Casey coming. And Sister Mary Casey took her religious name after her sister, so that was really beautiful. Oh, that yeah. is beautiful. You know, I have my my youngest daughter is adopted from China. Oh, beautiful. And many people adopt children with Down syndrome. I mean, maybe the word "many" is a strong is a strong word, but I remember mm-hmm. when we were adopting her, there were there were families bringing home babies with. Down with Down syndrome, and I was so overwhelmed with admiration, and but more than that, just uh, I wanted to bow before you know the God's spirit living in these people so fully, so beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It's so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Sister Veritas from the Sisters of Life. We're discussing a great event this January. It's called Life Fest, and it's taking place the same morning as the March for Life, including a Mass celebrated by Archbishop Laurie. Now, Sister, won't you give um, our listeners that don't know about the Sisters for Life a little snapshot of of your beautiful order, what you do, and and what wakes you up in the morning with a beautiful smile on your face? (laughs) Sure. So the Sisters of Life, um, we're a religious community of, of women who um, are captivated, captivated by the beauty of the human person, and we lay down our lives um, that uh, human life might be protected. Um, and so we were founded in 1991 by Cardinal O'Connor, and we really exist so that people know their life is good, your life is good, you matter to the Lord, you're made in His image and likeness. Because it's so easy to forget that in our culture, right, there's so many... Uh, dark thoughts, so many uh, discouraging things, and we can really start believing lies about who we are and about the the value of our life. Um, And so that's why we exist. That's why we pray. We pray about four hours a day for the cause of human life, um, and that all our missions flow from that prayer. So we serve women who are pregnant uh, and in crisis, um, helping them to, to receive the love they need in order to move forward in freedom and not in fear and be able to choose life for themselves and their children. We also have a lot of, we host a lot of retreats, we do a lot of evangelization and speaking about human life and love. And then uh, and we have a beautiful ministry of hope and healing for women who have suffered after abortion to know God's infinite love and, and mercy. And so all of these things, though, are, I mean, everything comes down to, to the fact that we're, we're wedded to Jesus, the Lord of life. Uh, and uh, Jesus, you know, he's someone who gives us all the joy, uh, and it's just a, a true gift um, to be his bride and to live in community with him and to be able to, uh, to give our lives uh, for life. So, yeah, it's really, really a, a privilege. And Sister, if you don't mind, if it's not too personal, could you tell us how, what brought you to, personally to the Sisters for Life, how you found your vocation? Um, so I felt called from a young age, but resisted it. <laughs> I was like, no, God, I don't want to be a nun, that's crazy. <laughs> um, but kind of experienced a deeper conversion in my about high school high school years, and then went into university, and uh, really was starting to fall in love with Jesus, but still resisting and afraid of being a sister. And just had this moment, you know, after a lot of you know, prayer and really encountering his love for me personally, that he loved me, saw me, um, had this moment of just surrender to him, like, Lord, if this is what you want for my life, okay, like, I'll be a sister. And just this peace and this joy I had never known before, just flooding me. And so for a while, I, I wasn't sure. I kind of kept it secret, didn't know what community. But a friend from a place I worked met some sisters of life at World East Day Australia in 2008. 
And she came and told me, uh, oh my gosh, I met these nuns. I could totally see was one of them. And I hadn't told her anything about it. And I was like, oh, no, I mean, come on. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You know, like, no, no, no. But then I looked them up. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is my heart. This is my heart. And I was, yeah, just so deeply moved by the charism. And yeah, I really felt the Lord calling me to enter. So I entered, I finished my degree, but I entered um, after that in 2010. So a uh, true, true gift. And God is so good. He's so generous. <laughs> And how long was that? How long ago was that that you that you professed your vows? Uh, um, so I entered twelve years ago, almost thirteen years ago, and mm-hmm. so I, I professed my first vows in twenty thirteen and my final vows in twenty eighteen. Oh, well, so. congratulations, sister! How wonderful to find oh, your path you. in life so young and and so surely, and 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 how wonderful to have your heart so open to to what God wants. He always wants what's oh, best for you. us, right? But it's so hard. <laughs> it does. It's so hard to listen. In the in in our no, pand- he, in our pandemonium world, he re- I know it is, it can be very hard, you know. But uh, I think that's the power of prayer is really to to make time every day, specific time to just listen to God and speak to Him from your heart and um, tell Him what's going on because that uh, so much can happen in prayer, and the Lord really wants to transform our lives through that encounter with Him. Yeah. For Life Fest, sister, you partnered with the Knights of Columbus. How did how did that yeah. come about, and how are the knights facilitating Life Fest? The knights are so wonderful. We we're so grateful to them. So we um, we have collaborated with them in the past for uh, two World Youth Day sites. So we uh, hosted with them um, uh, English speaking pilgrim site in both um, Madrid and Poland at the World Youth Days there. So it's kind of a large arena um, and. We worked with them on all the programming, everything like that. They were very kind just to sponsor the whole event in terms of uh, funding. Um, and so we're, we're kind of doing a similar collaboration uh, on Life Fest, which is such a gift, and we, we love working with the Knights. And um, but, So, yes, Life Fest is kind of a similar thing and a slightly smaller scale than the world these days, but um, a tremendous gift. And the Knights are just such, such good men and so uh, for life and with life, and they've done, they have so many initiatives supporting life, and so we're just... Um, grateful and privileged to be able to, to work with them on this. One of their initiatives is part of my bread and butter because I'm a radiologist and uh, oh, some of the work well. I do is fetal ultrasound and I work with the the, fe- the pregnancy care centers of uh, the Archdiocese of Miami. I'm, I'm the medical director and I get to read okay. the ultrasounds and the machines were donated by the Knights and I, I know we're doing so much good with those machines every time that the that that beautiful image of of a little child, a little son or daughter of God, pops up on that screen for that mother, mm. and very often father, they come in, the couples come in, you know, worried and concerned and not knowing where to turn, and when they see that that, that little child of God, um, very much there, very much alive, strong beating heart, um, everything shifts, every single thing shifts. So mm. I'm, I'm eternally grateful to the Knights of Columbus for for facilitating that moment all across the country who how, who knows how many thousands of times praise god no it's it's so powerful it's such a powerful a gift yeah we could give women who are in that position mm-hmm. it's funny cuz science seems to be um, going against us in a sense right like science keeps making abortion more ubiquitous and easier to find than now you can get it mailed by the United by the post office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it comes to your to your mailbox, and uh, even if you're th- if you're 13, you can open your mailbox and there's an abortion in a little box. Um, and at the same time, science really all it does is point out the beauty of God's creation and ultrasound, 
is 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 as a sign of that science really all it does is show us the the enormity of the love of god and how it it keeps it keeps keeping us all alive and and all these children coming oh just coming and coming into this world and hopefully being received yeah no it's it's such a gift it really you know faith and reason and all you know everything um that god has made points to him right so Mm -hmm. including science so it's it's really a, a tremendous gift um uh, and yeah, just so grateful, so grateful. And and I think, and I think it's it's such an important um, tool in terms of of you know medicine and for life in terms of the ultrasounds. Um, and then with that, partnered by that is again really understanding the heart of a pregnant woman, um, which is really powerful. And um, you know we actually talk about that too. There's a our new series, the Into Life series, which actually is being released on EWTN. I think on the 16th of January, uh, so very soon. Um, but it's basically a, a series of, that we've kind of put together with the McGrath Institute of Notre Dame of how to walk with a woman in crisis. Um, and it's really designed for small groups and parishes and uh, really beautifully done, very inspirational. But as you're saying, I think it goes along well with, with uh, what you're speaking of. So, uh, yeah, such a gift. And we're, we're excited for that. We're excited for Life Fest. Um, yeah. We have to check that out. Tell us, tell me again, tell us again, sister, about this program on EWTN. What's it called? It's going to be called, so it's, um, it's called Into Life Series. And so it's a, it's a program that we've developed separately, but EWTN is airing it. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the website is intolifeseries.com. And it's with the McGrath Institute of Notre Dame. It's 12 videos, 10, 10 minutes each, uh, as well as a study guide. And it really just kind of... Um, kind of gives a, a, a new way for walking with women who are, who are pregnant and in crisis and understanding them and how to understand, yeah, I mean, the gift of life, but also just um, how to listen deeply, how to understand her heart, her, heart, her fears, and, and walk with her uh, into life. So, again, that's uh, intolifeseries.com. And then I should mention also, <laughs> I forgot to mention, the, the Life Fest um, website is lifefest2023, lifefest2023.com. Well, sister, I hope that many of our listeners will be at Life Fest, and hopefully many will be at the march, and we'll check out IntoLifeSeries.com, which sounds like such a perfect initiative for these times when we have to be, we have to be the, the compassionate outreach side, right, of being pro-life. We have to make a home um, for every child, or at least help that mother and father make a home for that baby. So, sister, thank Amen. you so much. Hopefully, I will see you at the at the march, or if I can make it to Life Fest, I'm going to try. <laughs> my day, will, my morning will be very full, but I I don't want to sure. miss I don't want to miss Archbishop Lori's mass and also um, the sister of life and her twin sister with Down syndrome. I'm I really want to see that and and be moved and yeah. inspired for when the march starts. So, thank you very much, Sister Veritas, awesome. for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful, and please know my prayers. Thank you. God bless. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we welcome Dr. Ingrid Scott to the show. She is the Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs at, at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. She is also a practicing OBGYN in the San Antonio area. Uh, we are inviting her on the show to talk to us, discuss the new Federal Drug Administration rules, the relaxed further relaxed rules around chemical abortion. Welcome to the show, Dr. Scott. Thanks for having me. 
Dr. Scott, we wanted to have you on because I thought it would be good for all of us to understand very well the, the recent changes in the Federal Drug Administration's approach to chemical abortion. Chemical abortion is an abortion which is performed with two drugs. The first one is called mifepristone and the next is called misoprostol. You take the first one, you take the first one by mouth and you wait 24 to 48 hours and then you take the second drug, misoprostol. The first one causes a shutdown of progesterone, which is the hormone in our in our bodies that naturally supports the pregnancy. And then um, misoprostol, that kill that that denies the blood supply to the to the embryo and then misoprostol causes um, the uterus to violently contract and expel the products of conception as they're called the embryo and, and all the other parts associated with the pregnancy this is allowed by the FDA up to 10 weeks of pregnancy so when the baby is up to eight weeks old from from the from conception right so 10 weeks from LMP or eight weeks from conception it's very dangerous if it's uh, done when the baby is not inside the uterus but is ectopically located or not located properly out and if he's located outside the uterus it can cause the mother's death it is also associated it has been associated with at least 28 deaths as as noted by the fda although probably more because they can't obviously keep track of all the deaths um, and that was due to the baby being ectopic uh, and also sepsis and other and other reasons but mostly those two reasons because this chemical abortion is dangerous and it causes deaths in, so, in, in some situations of the mother. It always causes the death of the baby. The FDA created, uh, put it into a category of, of risk mitigation called REMS. Uh, there are several drugs on, in this category. One of them uh, might would be something like thalidomide or something like um, the acne medication that, that, uh, that you take, Retin-A, for instance, because these can have terrible consequences if someone's pregnant, for instance, and they're taking these drugs. So, so these risk mitigation strategies have been enforced uh, right up until 2021. And the strategy that was always used for mitigating the risk to the mother of the of the chemical abortion was that it had to that the drug had to be dispensed in person by a doctor, um, and that that doctor had to watch the patient ingest the drug and follow the patient because of all the dangers inherent with giving this drug being taken by someone who has an ectopic pregnancy or is more than 10 weeks pregnant, for instance, with a much bigger baby. All right, so these mitigation strategies were mostly taken away in 2021. Uh, COVID was used as the excuse because people weren't going to the doctor because they were afraid of COVID. This, the clinics were shut down. Planned Parenthood, I suppose, shut their doors for a while. So, uh, so the FDA decided to make it so that women could just take the drug without having a doctor dispense it in person. So you could do this by telehealth, right? Now there has been a further change as of last week. Now, basically... All the all the all the all the protections have been removed, and you can get the drug by just getting a prescription over the phone. If you're an OBGYN who is not only an important person at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, uh, the fellow and director of medical affairs, senior fellow, but you also are an OB who delivers babies um, and takes care of pregnant women on a regular basis. Why should this um, sort of terrify us for women? Well, it's simply, as you've uh, extensively documented, horrible care for women. It has been so politicized. In order for the FDA to approve it initially in 2000 under Pre President Clinton, they had to say 
that it was that there was no other treatment for the illness. Well, number one, uh, there was a treatment. It was a surgical abortion. And number two, it's not an illness. Uh, most abortions are performed for social indications. They're not performed because there's something about pregnancy that in most cases is going to uh, threaten a woman. The And, and on throughout um, the time that it's been approved, we've seen, we saw under um, President Obama in 2016, as you mentioned, it, the use was extended from seven weeks to 10 weeks. They no longer required complication reporting. And, you know, you mentioned how difficult it is for us to get data. In the United States, there is currently no mandate to report complications on a federal level. Some of the states ask for that to be done, but the truth is many doctors don't know about it. Many doctors ignore it, uh, particularly abortion providers. And there's much documentation that we just have really no idea how often these complications occur. So, Dr. Doctor, Doctor, Dr. Scott, uh-huh. so let me just uh, drill down on that. When, when the, on the FDA website, you read that there have been 28 deaths since the year 2000 when this drug was started. Was started. They say only 28 deaths, as though any one of those deaths is not a tragedy. That's not a number that we can rely on. Oh, absolutely not. And, you know, one of the very common causes of deaths in women who've had abortions, as documented by records linkage studies in Scandinavian countries, is suicide. A woman is six times as likely to commit suicide in the year following an abortion. There is no way that we are detecting hardly any of the suicides that occur after abortion because of the multi-way that we collect maternal mortality data. Um, Even the complications, um, you mentioned the retained products of conception, the hemorrhage, the infections. uh, The the abortion industry really publishes the studies telling us how how safe their product is, knowing that the data is incomplete. But again, when we look at better quality data, 3 to 8% of women who have chemical abortions will fail. That means that they will, in some cases, still have a living embryo, but in most cases, fail to pass all the tissue and require surgery. That ends up happening in the emergency Mm -hmm. room. The women have not been uh, counseled to expect such a thing. They do not go back to the abortion provider. They come to me. And I have seen, in fact, just three days ago when I was on call, I saw this play out. The emergency room doctor, even though she knew it was an abortion complication, documented the coding as a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And this happened all the time. At Charlotte Lozier, we documented uh, 60% of the time these complications come in are documented as a miscarriage complication. So you can see how difficult it is to get any reliable data, but three to eight percent of these women are suffering these complications and requiring surgery. So what we're let's let's uh, let's flesh that out for our listeners. So you're talking about a girl, seventeen um, year old girl, for instance, goes to Planned Parenthood after a cursory look at her, and they ask her when was her last period. Um, they hand her the the drugs, right? She goes home, mm-hmm. she takes them. What does she experience um, in in the privacy of her own home, all by herself, without any any support? And what's that like? What's what's uh, what's one of these abortions like for? A 17-year-old girl say? Well, it's a terrible experience, and women don't usually talk about it, but a recent study documented that almost 40% of women, when polled after their chemical abortion, said that they experienced severe pain. So again, it's like labor. The mesoprostol causes the uterus to go into have contractions as if labor. So they experience that pain. They experience hemorrhage. I mean, they're not just having a period, they are passing the pregnancy tissue. And that's a lot of bleeding that goes along with it. The woman that I mentioned that I cared for a few days ago, 
She got her abortion pills two months ago in California and had been bleeding every day since then. Finally showed up and I was able to do a surgery to help her out. But most emotionally devastating, which you hardly ever hear anyone talk about, is that this is approved up to 10 weeks. And as you mentioned, women may miscalculate their gestational age. There have been documented cases of 31-week, 33-week babies being delivered after taking these pills when either a woman was coerced or was desperate and took it beyond the time that she should take it or miscalculated her gestational age. But even at eight to 10 weeks, that baby is about the size and shape of a gummy bear. He is distinctly human and he's in the toilet and she sees him. So what is the emotional repercussions of a woman making that choice, usually in crisis, sometimes being coerced, and then seeing her child and recognizing it as a human being. Wait, and she's also been bleeding up a hemorrhage and um, just in agony from violent uterine contractions. She just labored into the toilet, and now she's yeah. seeing her baby. This is this is the chemical abortion that's being sold to American girls and women as just a blip, you know, a blip in your radar. I mean, oh yeah, you, well, you're pregnant, take these pills and the problem's over. This is definitely yeah, not a blip on the radar of someone of a woman's life. And it's being so much promoted in the states that have recently begun restricting abortion. Of course, I'm in Texas. I'm at ground zero. My daughter's a student at Texas A&M, and there was a webinar promoted to all of the students from a student group telling them how to get a hold of these pills and self-manage their abortions. That's what we're dealing with. It's illegal in the state of Texas, but they boldly promoted it to the college students. I do fetal ultrasound, as our listeners know, because I talk about it a lot. I love fetal ultrasound. It, it connects me very vitally to that beautiful idea that every human being is a child of God, <laughs> because I see these these perfect little little children of God, you know, just trembling on the threshold of life, and, and they're my patients, and that's, that's how I feel about them, and I think that's how all of us should feel about these children. But in my fetal ultrasounds, what I know a lot, I see this all the time, women, especially younger women have no idea how long they've been pregnant because I get the the requisition will say uh, last period was eight weeks ago. Well, guess what? The baby is a lot bigger than a baby who would have been conceived with a last period of eight weeks ago. This happens constantly to me. So I understand that when the FDA says this can only be safely done up until 10 weeks of pregnancy and a girl is calling, you know, a provider in Alaska from Texas to write her a prescription and email it to her so she can carry it over to the CVS. This girl could be pregnant at any stage of pregnancy. So this is a very dangerous thing. I also see ectopic pregnancies and women have no idea they're carrying an ectopic pregnancy. I'm not even sure, maybe you can tell us, how does an OBGYN diagnose an ectopic pregnancy without an ultrasound and on the phone? They cannot. You know, blood tests sometimes can lead us, you know, even without an ultrasound. But but again, we're talking about women who are getting no evaluation. No one's laying a hand on them. No one is um, doing an ultrasound, as you said, um, blood work. It's such a cruel way to treat women that it blows my mind that it is painted as women's health care. If women, if we cared about women, then of course we would want to do everything we could to make the procedure as safe as possible. Of course, I don't agree that it's safe because it ends a human life. But even abortion advocates, someone really needs to look them in the eye and say, why Why are you willing to let these women suffer higher rates of complications, which may include death? Because one study documented that if a woman is undergoing an abortion and her ectopic pregnancy has not been diagnosed, she is 30% more likely to die 
than if she had not chosen the abortion. Because when she bleeds and when she has pain, she's going to assume that's a sign that the abortion is working. She's not going to know it's a warning sign that her life is in danger and her tube is getting ready to rupture. <sighs> so we're going to we're going to start seeing this in our country. And I lay all the blame at the door of the abortion advocates and the FDA for not doing their job to protect American women. They're again they're doing this under political pressure based on very poor data promoted by the abortion industry. They didn't do that in the 50s and 60s when we determined that cigarette smoking was dangerous, and they really need to um, begin doing their jobs and um, recognize uh, that this is dangerous, and we cannot depend on the abortion industry to tell us how dangerous their product is. A couple years ago, I called my local Planned Parenthood, and I asked them what what was the cost of a first trimester surgical abortion, and I think they they answered me let me if I, let me get this right. I think it was $750 was the cost, right? And then I said, well, what about a chemical abortion? And they said, it's the same price. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, so I get it. You're charging yeah. the same price for a procedure that takes a nurse and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all sorts of pre-op stuff and lying down on the thing and the, and the doctor being present and doing the procedure and, mm-hmm. and then the patient recovering. And, and you, you're charging the same thing for handing the patient two pills. And yeah, you can, you can clearly recognize why the provision of, of chemical abortion has just skyrocketed. If you look at the, you know, from 1,000 until now, now it's more than 50% of all abortions. This young woman that I cared for, again, she went to California. I asked her, did they even offer you a, a, a surgical abortion? She said, no, I didn't know that was something I can do. Mm-hmm. And this is, and they knew she was from Texas. They knew they're going to give her a pill that's going to cause her to bleed as she drives back halfway across the country, and that if she does have a complication, they will have no physician-patient relationship relationship with her and she has been um, she's been basically um, uh, abandoned abandoned by the medical provider and and they call that women's health care okay now what how does this uh, how do these changes in the FDA and this 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 really strong push to promote chemical abortion across state lines how does that run up against these the different state all the different state laws because Many states, I think 18 or 19 states, have laws that that insist on personal dispensing of these drugs, that exactly what the FDA is recommending is not allowed. So how does this interact with with different state laws? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, in most cases, there are laws that specifically prohibit this sort of distribution. I think, you know, your listeners are probably aware that we're living in a society right now in which many cases, the people who have been tasked with enforcing our laws choose not to. Um, There's a certain degree of lawlessness, particularly at the federal level. Um, So, you know, again, we don't see any um, uh, government, um, you know, guidance for the Postal Service on how to how to determine what should be um, distributed. I think the the states are going to have to get um, creative. They're going to have to figure out, you know, on the ground, how do we how do we make this work out so that we can protect women? Um, I think we need to get, you know, the boards of pharmacies involved. And, you know, we're discussing some ways to do that. Your listeners, um, I think it would be very, very useful for them to go, as I did a few days ago, to Walgreens to move their prescriptions and not just to do it quietly, but to, I, I, I pulled the pharmacist aside and I gave her some literature from Charlotte Lozier and I said, here's why I'm moving and I want you to let your company know this. Now, she wasn't particularly concerned because she's in Texas and said that they don't require them to, um, you know, distribute mifepristone. But honestly, any pharmacist with a conscience should see 
you know, I may be protected now, but not always. And so I think I'm hopeful that there will be quite a pushback against CVS and Walgreens and whatever, you know, big pharmaceutical chains decide to um, uh, distribute these pills um, from people saying, no, that is not appropriate. Pharmacy is for healing. It is not for killing. Well, I hope that a lot of our listeners take that to heart. And, and I recommend to all our listeners to get informed about chemical abortion, its dangers. The Charlotte Lozier website has a fabulous um, layout of all that, of all the dangers of chemical abortion and how it's taking over our country. Do it, you know, and get informed so that you can be the one that protects your daughters and your nieces and your neighbors, uh, young young women or women of any age that, that are um, in danger of falling for this, uh, the, the terrible danger of chemical abortion. So thank you very much, Dr. Scope. I hope to run into you at the March for Life in a week or two. Thanks. And uh, I thank you so much for your work at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thank you for this privilege. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. It's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday as we enter into ordinary time. On Monday this week, we celebrated the end of the Christmas season with the Feast of the Lord's Baptism, in which, with the help of St. Matthew, we ponder the objective details of the baptism of Jesus that began his public ministry. John the Baptist protests that he wasn't worthy to baptize the Lord. Jesus insisting that it, it had to occur to fulfill all righteousness. The Holy Spirit's coming down on Jesus visibly like a dove, and God the Father's voice thundering from heaven, This is my Son, my Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. This Sunday we revisit the same scene, but look at it from the perspective more or less of John the Baptist, whom St. John the Evangelist seemed to be following until that point. We see something surprising, if not shocking. The Baptist says that the whole reason for his mission, the point of his life, the purpose for which he was baptizing with water at the Jordan, was so that he would be able to indicate the one who was coming after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And when that long-awaited person came, the Baptist didn't cry out, Behold the Lord, or Behold the Messiah, or Look, the Son of God, or Here is the Savior, the King of the Jews and King of Kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Light of the World, the Resurrection and the Life, or any of the other fitting titles that would have filled his listeners with awe at the incredible majesty of the one whose sandal-strap John was indicating he wasn't worthy to untie. Instead, he used an expression that was not majestic at all. Behold the Lamb of God. We have grown so accustomed to the phrase Lamb of God, which we use in the glory to God in the highest, saying three times in the Agnus Dei, and here the priests say, when echoing the very words of John the Baptist, he holds Jesus in his elevated hands as he tells us to behold him. We are so accustomed to it that many of us no longer sense what the Jews would have felt when the Baptist referred to Jesus in this way. Imagine, however, a young child just hitting the age of reason, or an adult from a remote village and culture totally unaware of Christian theology. We're at church one morning and the priest said about Jesus, Look, there is the pigeon of heaven, or behold, the squirrel of the Almighty. Their immediate reaction would likely be similar to that of many Jews to Jesus when they heard him referred to by the term lamb. Lambs aren't high on our list of beloved and admired animals. They're not noted for their strength or looks. They're not impressive like elephants or tigers, stallions, bears, or eagles. Yet John the Baptist said the whole reason he was alive was to point the Messiah out using that very expression. Why? What does it mean? Why does God call us to relate to Jesus in that way? How is it supposed to influence our faith in day-to-day life? For a Jew, even though a lamb was not a particularly impressive animal, it did have a very important purpose. 
more than any other animal, it was the one traditionally chosen to sacrifice to God. And Jesus absolutely identified with this means of oblation and expiation. He associated himself with the lamb sacrificed by Abel that was pleasing to God, with the lamb that God provided for Abraham's sacrifice so, so that his son Isaac wouldn't die, with the lambs whose blood was placed in the lintels of the Jews during the Passover, with the lambs that were offered each day to God in the temple, as many as 700 a day, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, in atonement for sins. Jesus assimilated in himself the identity and sacrificial purpose of the lamb and Jewish mentality to become precisely the acceptable sacrifice offered to the Lord to take away the sins not just of Jews but of the whole world. Beholding Jesus as the lamb of God, the Jews were invited to see something far greater at work than just a recently arrived carpenter from Nazareth, but the fulfillment of all the sacrifices of the old covenant, the realization of the much prophesied work of the long-awaited one, they were being challenged to see in Jesus something far greater than met the eye. And through the Baptist words and work, they were being called by Jesus to relate to him under this title, to see him as the great scapegoat who would come to save them from their sins that would self-alienate them from God forever. It's absolutely key for us, therefore, if we're going to relate to Jesus as he truly is, to relate to him as the Lamb of God. When we're given a snapshot of heaven, it's clear that those in eternity relate to Jesus in this way. In the book of Revelation, when St. John sees in a vision the drama of salvation history and has a glimpse of the celestial liturgy, we behold that before the throne of God, the Father, there is a lamb standing as though it had been slain, and before whom those in heaven were fallen down singing, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And to the lamb be blessing and honor, glory and power forever and ever. Twenty-four times in Revelation, John refers to Jesus by the title Lamb. The Lamb is the one who opens the seven seals, the one before whom the redeemed wearing white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb with palm branches in their hand, cry out, Salvation comes from our God and from the Lamb. The Lamb is the one who leads them to the springs of life-giving water and wipes away their tears. The Lamb is the owner of the book of life. The Lamb is the one whom the virgins follow wherever he goes. The Lamb is the one whose lamp and light illumine the holy city. The lamb is the one whose wedding feast is the whole substance of heaven. To learn to relate to Jesus' lamb is therefore crucial for this life and eternal life. Many of us think we do because we're familiar with the title and even recite it multiple times in each liturgy. But while we certainly know about Jesus as lamb of God, we're called humbly to get to know him personally much better through relating to him as lamb. What are the practical consequences of relating to Jesus in this way? First, it should influence the way we pray. To pray to Jesus, the Lamb of God, means that we recognize we're sinners in need of Him to take away our sins, that we need to turn to Him to intercede for us before God the Father's throne. Second, it should change the way we relate to the sacraments of baptism and confession, which Jesus instituted to take away our sins we've committed prior to and post-baptism. Most Catholics sadly don't behold the Lamb in this way nearly enough. They don't come to look him in his merciful face, but rather live with their sins, and often it seems, sadly, die in their sins. As Pope Francis continuously calls us, Christ has come mercifully to take away the sins of the world. We should never tire of asking for the mercy that lamb never tires to give. Third, relating to Jesus' lamb must impact the way we approach the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. 
Just like the ancient Jews needed to eat the Passover lamb in order to enter fully into the covenant and have their firstborn son saved, so we have to eat the lamb to enter fully into the new and eternal covenant. How blessed we are to be called to the supper of the lamb. Fourth, relating to Jesus' lamb means announcing him as lamb. To become like St. John the Baptist's precursors, pointing Jesus out to our family members, friends, and contemporaries. Most don't believe they really need Jesus, that they're sinners desperate for a savior. This is one of the great triumphs of the devil in the modern world. That's why in every generation, especially ours, we need to point out Jesus as the lamb. People's eternal salvation depends on their relating to Jesus in this way. During these days, we thank the Lord in a particular way for how both Pope Benedict XVI and Australian Cardinal George Pell fearlessly proclaimed how much we need Christ the Lamb as our Savior. Lastly, relating to Jesus' Lamb means that we develop a sensitivity to all those who, like Jesus, are led to the slaughter or suffering, hurting, or in particular need. During his public ministry, the Lamb of God announced that he was the, also the Good Shepherd who gathers the Lamb in his arms, who protects lambs from the wolves, goes out after anyone who was lost to take them back to the fold. Beholding the Lamb is meant to make us more capable of beholding him as he suffers in the members of his body. The end of the book of Revelation, which features the Lamb seating on a throne, describes how many will make war on the Lamb. There's a real battle with eternal stakes, which the enemy is seeking to have us not to relate to Jesus as Lamb of God, who takes away the world's sins, not to pray to him, not to confess, not to receive him worthily, not to proclaim him, and not to recognize and defend him in others. But Revelation tells us, the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. On Sunday, we who have been sanctified by the blood of the Lamb, will be strengthened to follow the Lamb wherever he leads, and to help the whole world to relate to Jesus under that title. On Sunday, we will have the awesome privilege not just to behold the Lamb of God indicated by John, but to eat the Lamb as we joyfully echo on earth the eternal song of the angels and saints in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let us prepare to behold that lamb, to follow that lamb, and to become one with that lamb. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 